Hello, hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. I'm Sarah Jamshidi. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show I feature peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we are talking with two distinguished guests. They are accomplished, renowned educators, scholars, and major people in the field they are working. Their field is nuclear disarmament and world security. Rebecca Johnson and Kathleen Sullivan are Nobel Peace Laureates. They receive the highest recognition in the field of making peaceful changes by working with international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons or ICANN. Dr. Rebecca Johnson is executive director of Acronym Institute for Disarmament Diplomacy. She is also a founding president of the ICANN. She is the author of numerous academic and analysis on non-proliferation, disarmament, and strategies to ban nuclear weapons. Rebecca's work for Acronym Institute focuses on nuclear disarmament and security within the platform of Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, or CTBT, and Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT. Dr. Kathleen Sullivan is a founding member of the ICANN, as well as Nagasaki Peace Co- Correspondent and Hiroshima Peace Ambassador. Kathleen has spent a lifetime in nuclear disarmament. She has worked nationally and internationally to educate the public about the danger of nuclear weapons. Kathleen decided to focus on a particular demographic group that she thinks can learn fast and can change the planet, and those specific demographic is high school students. Kathleen is the head of Hibakusha Stories, an art-based initiative of Youth Arts New York. Through Hibakusha Stories, Kathleen has brought atomic bomb survivors to New York to talk about their stories. More than 45,000 students have been introduced and educated by Hibakusha Stories. Here, I'm welcoming Dr. Rebecca Johnson here. Hello. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. Very, 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 very good to see you. And this is Kathleen. I want us in a a brief and a way that all of us can understand. Tell us about what is nuclear disarmament? Well, nuclear disarmament literally is to take away and get rid of the nuclear weapons that have been built and then have existed since 1945. So we've had 75 years of these abhorrent, appalling weapons not just of mass destruction, but mass annihilation. A lot of people get confused, I think, when they hear about arms control, and then they say, well, what's the relationship to nuclear disarmament? And I think arms control is what governments essentially put in place if they want to keep the weapons. So they want to manage them. They maybe will be prepared to do reductions and and you know, and that can be, be helpful for stabilizing the situation. But if we talk about nuclear disarmament, we're talking about getting rid. And that is why it's not just about non-proliferation. You mentioned that as being one of the areas I worked on. And yes, you're quite right. But actually, I did that as an understanding that we were only really going to stop the spread of nuclear weapons if we 
end all reliance and actually end all the nuclear arsenals. So, so what, why, why, why do we need to eliminate nuclear weapon, Kathleen? What, what does this weapon has that is extremely dangerous? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Sarah, for inviting us on. And I also want to thank my dear friend, Rebecca, for being here with me too. Rebecca is one of my sheroes. She was at the gates of Greenham Common for many years where women put their bodies on the line to protect the community from U.S. nuclear weapons that were stationed in Europe. And after more than 15 years or more, Rebecca can speak about this much better than I, those weapons were moved from the Greenham Common. So it shows people power. Nuclear disarmament is why eliminate? Because if nuclear weapons are used by accident or by design, it, would, it threatens the existence of complex life forms on the planet. We often talk about nuclear abolition, the abolishing of nuclear weapons, and we take the, those words, that phrase, from the abolition of slavery. Because although there still exists slavery in the world, the wholesale trade in human beings that happened in the UK and in the US is abhorrent. Nobody could say, I own another human being. It, it, it became a moral imperative to abolish slavery. We believe that if people understand what nuclear weapons actually mean, that they literally threaten everything and every one we love every moment of every day, that people would also find such abhorrence in nuclear weapons. So yes, they must be eliminated because they threaten everything that we hold dear. So in a sense, what the nuclear weapon does to us, Rebecca, do you know what does it do oh. to, to us, to the planet? Yes. Can you tell us? You know, while I was teaching, I ended up teaching for two years in, in, in Japan. And I went to Hiroshima and the museum really shows exactly what happens when what is compared to now is a very was a very small nuclear weapon about 13,000 tons of of TNT i mean it's not small but that weapon in the way that it worked it had an explosion with a fireball and that just set up a huge blast so houses were completely demolished and the the flash uh, blinded people and uh, you really need to hear the Hibaksha themselves talking about what it was like. Setsuko Thurlow, who was 13 years old and, and at school, when she has talked to, to me and others about it, we, in a way it's unimaginable, and in another way she makes us see what it was like for a 13-year-old girl to, to get pulled from the rubble and then only to see these ghostly figures and only, you know, with their skin hanging from them. And Hiroshima, which was a pretty large city, was completely flattened apart from a few quite large concrete buildings and they had their roofs blown off. But then there's the next thing that happens, which in 1945, nobody knew about, and that's the radiation that comes with it. And that just contaminates the whole area. And so you can't grow food for a long time or you can't eat the food you grow. And uh, and in many cases, because of this massive mushroom cloud, 
that it actually causes a rainfall that is, is black and greasy and full of this radioactivity. But the other thing that began to be researched by scientists in the 1980s and now has been completely updated and was information that we used when we went out to the governments, you know, about 13, 14 years ago and said, look, it's not enough to have the non-proliferation and to have the nuclear test ban or the, the, the reductions and the management. It has to be the abolition. It has to be a treaty that bans and eliminates nuclear weapons. And this is why, because if a tiny fraction of the world's arsenals, which today stands about 13 and a half thousand, but if you imagine just say, you know, 50 nuclear weapons used, and most weapons now are also quite a lot, a lot larger than uh, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs, if you use 50 to 100, and the scientists looked at India and Pakistan unleashing against each other because they had fairly recently in the in the late 90s, when they had nuclear weapons, they'd actually also fought a war. And they did pull back from the brink. But the scientists said, well, what would have happened if they hadn't? And the cities are much bigger nowadays in a lot of countries than they were, than Hiroshima and Nagasaki were. What happens then is if you explode the nuclear weapons and just a handful, you know, 50 to 100 out of the 13 and a half thousand on cities, you create not only that blast and, and flash that blinds people and incinerates the bodies nearest and contaminates the earth all around, but you create a huge amount of dust that goes up into the upper atmosphere and it starts to circulate and it actually creates a kind of dark shield around the entire planet at the level of the upper atmosphere. So it totally, it, it causes darkness, it causes uh, changes, climate chaos is, is, is what it is. But climate chaos for year after year after year means people can't grow food and you get nuclear famine. And a scientist who works very closely with us in ICANN called Dr. Ira Helfand calculated that with that scenario of that just that handful of nuclear weapons used on cities so anywhere in the world, actually, what you would get is up to two billion people. That's it's just under a third of the whole world's population dying of starvation, nuclear famine. So talking about nuclear famine and dying from starvation, this, these are facts that we are talking about. But these facts apply to people. And Kathleen, you do have talent to tell those stories. And the whole Hibakusha stories is based on the kind of, the, the kind of effect that Rebecca is talking about. Tell us some of those stories that you think is very important for us to understand. Well, I think that, you know, what Rebecca just said is um, it's hard for us to convey these things because it's true. It's hard to imagine what it would be like to have global famine from global cooling. But those studies have been done and it's important for us to get that information out because most people think of nuclear war as an abstraction. You know, that's something that would never happen. It's just, you know, deterrence has kept the peace and all of this nonsense that we've sort of been sleepwalking towards an apocalypse with. 
So our goal in Hibaksha Stories is to illuminate the messages that Rebecca was just talking about, the facts that she's laying bare. I want stories. T- Kathleen, tell me a story that you think, uh, you, you, you keep talking about Sesutko, uh, Thurlow, and other survivors. So what are their stories, what they experienced? Well, as Rebecca said, Setsuko was a 13-year-old uh, schoolgirl. She was actually at an army training ground on August 6th, and um, she was part of a special group of young girls that were taught to decode secret messages. And she always likes to say, think how desperate Japan was, that they were enlisting 13-year-old girls as code breakers. And she said that the major army major Yanai gave them the order to do their best. And they said, yes, sir, we will. And at 8.15, that happened. There was a bluish white flash that illuminated the room that they were in. The next thing she knew, she was floating in the air and then she uh, lost her consciousness. She was saved by a most likely a Japanese soldier, a man who was pushing her and said, keep pushing, keep moving, keep moving towards the light to get out from under the collapsed building. And she was one of just three girls that managed to do that when they had managed to escape the rubble, the building was on fire. So they actually left with their classmates screaming and crying for help. I mean, imagine that. And that was just the the least of what they experienced in stepping over dead bodies and trying to give some kind of succor to those that were lying dead and dying, the wounded, um, filling up fields of you know, what we consider like football size fields and people had no medical care, had no help at all. And this is another thing that I can and the work that Rebecca and I have been involved in, which is about talking about the humanitarian effects. You know, for so many years, societies, nuclear armed states have been drunk by the idea of the military doctrine of deterrence. So we have big bombs, we are scary, bad countries, you must be afraid of us, we will beat you into submission. No, What we are focusing on is what nuclear weapons do to human bodies, as Setsuko uh, can attest to herself, and the planet, as Rebecca was just uh, discussing. Very good. Yeah, so I wanted to learn more about ICANN. ICANN had Setsuko be one of the women to accept the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of all of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and one of the others was, was Beatrice, who was at that time, the, the, the head of the staff in Geneva. How many people, how many people were, well, do you remember? Yes, we, we, it was the organization, so we won it collectively. And, and with that, the Nobel Committee made a certain number of, of the Nobel medals so that we could use it in going around the country. So, you know, it's it's in Australia, it's in Japan, you know, it's in Latin America, it's in the United States. And wherever you have ICANN people, particularly in the early stages uh, after we got the treaty, being able to take the Nobel Medal sometimes opened doors that mm-hmm. hadn't been opened before. Yeah. Yep. And and that was important, and that was also why. And 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 Kathleen's absolutely right to rem- remember 
and recall that, you know the IPPNW, these physicians and Dimity and 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 Felicity reaching critical will reaching and critical will is reaching where critical the, will the, and, the disarmament you know, program of the women. So can you tell me, uh, Kathleen? Can you tell me? Can you tell me about the critical will? What is the critical will? Uh, Reaching Critical Will is the disarmament initiative of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Its current director is a outstanding uh, woman feminist analyst, Ray Acheson, a Canadian woman. And Reaching Critical Will was the thought child of Felicity Ruby. And um, it was really through that feminist analysis-driven work that we were doing at the UN to demystify the disarmament processes that were happening at the United Nations. When I was working with uh, Reaching Critical Will, my focus was on the nuclear issue, but the women at RCW also focus on small arms, killer robots, basically anywhere that you can place humanitarian feminist disarmament movements. And so it was out of discussions in the 2006 time in Reaching Critical Will, where a lot of the early thinking around ICANN was was born. And I think that's very important to presence because it's a very feminist foundation, a collective foundation. And, you know, that really is the spirit of our movement. We are not one, we are many. And that's why, you know, while it's a bit of an ego boost to say, oh, you know, Kathleen Sullivan, a Nobel Peace Laureate. No, no. I work for the laureate. The laureate is I can, and it belongs to all of us. And I think that that's what makes it so impressive. As Rebecca said, that you know, all of us can hold that medal. You know, sort of talisman. It does really open doors, and it's also um, really thrilling to think that through our work, inspiring, advocating for and really delivering the treaty on the prohibition to abolish nuclear weapons, to prohibit nuclear weapons, which brought us the Nobel Peace Prize, also is something that is shared. And it is something that continues to inspire. And it is something that really brought to the fore the nuclear threat once again. I mean, Rebecca and I and others have been dedicating our lives to this movement But unfortunately, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, many people felt like, oh, well, you know, we don't have to worry about those um, ICBM missiles anymore, when that couldn't be farther from the truth. There were more countries that acquired and threatened to use nuclear weapons. Um, Nuclear weapons continue to be modernized. Here, I'm talking to you from New York City and the, you know, abysmal, unethical orange Cheeto that is the president of the United States recently threatened to begin nuclear testing program again. You know, I mean, nuclear bullying is alive and well, but what they had not figured on was the fact that a group of citizens, academics, medical doctors, and scientists from across the world, writers, actors, musicians, humanity, had would rise up in such a way to challenge nuclear armed states not by continually revisiting this old and dusty uh, military doctrine of deterrence, but by appealing to people's humanity and love of life on earth. Very good. That's what sets us apart. And that's what 
how we've achieved what we have achieved. Excellent. When I come back, we are, I'm going to ask about whether or not it's a, it's a fair statement to say when we have women on the table, things may look differently. So stay with me. I'm going to come back. For this hour, you are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. I'm live streaming our conversation on Facebook and on YouTube. All this information is going to be available and posted on goldtune.com. An online news magazine I manage with a group of international foreign correspondents. For next program, I'm talking with Zainab Salvi, founder of Women for Women International. Zainab is the fierce advocate for women's rights in her home country, Iraq, and around the world. After that, I'm talking with Cheryl Olitsky, co-founder and executive director for Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, Sarah Haider, assistant director and chapter manager, and Julie Plot Warwick, healthcare professional and laughter yoga teacher who manages the Seattle chapter of Sisterhood of Salam Shalom here in, in the Washington States and with me. So she is the Jewish woman, I am the Muslim woman, and then we are managing the chapter here in the state of Washington. So we're going to talk about the importance of being kind and compassionate in the sisterhood camp of Muslims and Jewish people. For this hour, I'm talking with with Rebecca Johnson, Nobel Peace Laureate, researcher, scholar, and activist on nuclear disarmament and global security. Rebecca is executive director for Acronym Institute for Disarmament Diplomacy. Rebecca has vast, vast knowledge and expertise in nuclear technology and treaties such as Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty or CTBT and Non-Polarification Treaty or NPT. Rebecca collaborated with uh, campaigns in nuclear disarmament to raise awareness of the safety and security risks of Britain's nuclear convoy. She is the author of Unfinished Business, the Negotiation of the CTBT and the End of Nuclear Testing. Kathleen Sullivan co-wrote a book with Peter Locus titled Action for Disarmament, 10 Things You Can Do. The book translated into Japanese and Korean. She has co-produced two documentaries, The Last Atomic Bomb and The Ultimate Wish Ending the Nuclear Age. She also produced and directed art projects uh, focusing on disarmament. Some of those include the nuclear age in six movements and if you love this planet. Kathleen graciously allowed me to post if you love this planet on goldtoon.com. So if you go to goldtoon.com under the headline Rebecca Johnson and Kathleen Sullivan, Nobel Peace Laureates and Peaceful Activists in Nuclear Disarmament, you'll see that video. So now I am bringing Kathleen Sullivan and Rebecca Johnson. And I want to know when we have women on the table, how the negotiation may or may not change. Kathleen. Oh, <laughs> I was going to go to Rebecca because she's my feminist shero. Um, I, I did mention at the start of the program, and it's, it bears repeating, that Rebecca was part of a group of women that literally shut down a nuclear operation at, on common land in England. And you know, when you bring women to the table where we have been not invited 
uh, you get a different perspective. And I'm not going to be essentialist here because I lived in the UK when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. And, you know, so there are women who want to play that patriarchal re uh, role. But when women come to the table, you find more collaboration, uh, more of a focus on the humanitarian aspects. I mean, I think that our treaty really is uh, a feminist document because, again, it's not focusing on the weapons of war. It's focusing on what those do to human bodies, to the living body of Earth, to future generations. And I think those uh, perspectives have largely been uh, left out in male-dominated spheres. And again, I don't want to be essentialist. I, I have a feminist loving partner who is a man. But we have been bifurcated into these different camps. And I think that right now we're really busting out and that a feminist world view is what's going to help heal the, the conflicts and what divides us. And you, know, you can see it in the response to uh, COVID-19. Those countries that have women um, at the helm are by and large recovering better than those countries that have had a very domineering uh, sort of male practice. And you know this is a very complex thing. I'm I'm struggling because there's not a lot of sound bites. But bringing women to the table and having equal representation is absolutely essential to uh, climbing out of the militarist and environmental protection-defying hole that we are currently in when we face the threat of nuclear war and climate chaos. Women mm. must be represented. Yes, Rebecca, you are a feminist and women advocate and someone who has raised her voice constantly for advocating and supporting women. So what happens when we have women at the table? As Kathleen said, we you get a different perspective and there's been all kinds of studies and they've shown that if there's only one woman at the table, then she is often intimidated into a situation of sort of acquiescence. And that was a situation with that tokenism that you got in, in parliaments where there'd be a very small number of women. But, you know, it, it's, it's almost the Thatcher profile that they'd have to become more aggressively masculine in that socialized, weaponized kind of 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 um, way of doing politics that was acceptable for certainly the centuries of the of the whole military industrial developments. But the more women that you would have, even though they would come from different perspectives, perhaps in different politics, the more likely it was that you'd get an acknowledgement of the impact of, say, weapons or the impact impacts of any kind of policy on people, on the environment, because we're dependent on the environment. We're dependent on, you know, the food and the water that we get from a clean environment and that we can't get if the environment becomes poisoned. And also in, in peacemaking negotiations where there'd be conflict, which very often was, again, very gendered that the the majority uh, of conflicts it's uh, uh, well practically all conflicts that i can think of men are wielding the weapons 
And women, and often they're lumped in as women and children, are considered the victims of these conflicts and the victims of policies of, of behavior that they're supposed to abide by. And as you move towards some kind of conflict resolution, you'll never get a sustainable conflict resolution if it's only men around the table, because they will manage that into a form where they will still wield power over women. And very often they think they're wielding power over the family, over the uh, land. And, you know, it's all of those kinds of things that are the problem. You need to have women who that, you know, and again, not to be essentialist, but there is a different relationship to life and death because women have to carry babies for nine months and then carry on nurturing them really for the rest of their lives. And that gives a future look what kind of a world of, are the children going to grow up in? Men, of course, are the fathers of, of those, but it, it, it takes only a few seconds in some cases but for them to become that biological father. And they don't necessarily. Too many men don't look into the seventh generation. And here again, we have to recognize that there is a division across the world between cultures that really have taken the long view and have respected the earth and respected you, you know, what she gives us and what we need to do to live in harmony with her. And I'm thinking of First Nation people and Indigenous people in particular who lived and loved, lived with their land and, you know, loved the ground and who recognised that it had to be sustainable, not to go into this kind of cancerous growth of the military industrial project that has been so appalling. So, so what we need is women around the peacemaking tables too, so that what is built is going to be sustainable. And again, studies have looked at that and found that the more women around the table in a peace negotiation, the more likely is the outcome to be able to stick, to be able to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how come? Why? Because they're looking at the long view, they are bring. They're also they're not about power over. They're not about you know being around that table and or going into politics in order to wield power. It's in order to do. It's a power to do, and it's a power to do something for you know the next generation, and that means also the planet. And you know, so it's about that equality, that justice, that you know, solving the conflicts, that sharing of the resources, rather than trying to eliminate people that are also dependent on those resources. And this is why also you'll see so many young women at the forefront of, of the climate um, strikes for, for, for peace and, 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 for and for climate justice, because they, for whatever reason, and, you know, Quite a lot of it is 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 social and structural, and and it's actually to do with with the way in which women have actually been excluded from the power over structures. Mm -hmm. So when we build this, the the structures ourselves, we build them in circles, or we build them in webs where there are strands. We mm -hmm. recognize that out of each fragile individual human being, you can make the most powerful 
you know, network across a world that can accomplish this. And that's the one only thing that I would disagree yeah. with Catherine about. I don't work for ICANN. I don't think any of us work for ICANN. We are ICANN. Well, no, 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 that's that's correct. I, I, yeah. yeah. So, Kathleen, uh, I want to. Um, I, I want us very good. I want uh, your take on the same issue that Rebecca was making that you think is crucial and you agree with. Well, Rebecca just gave me a little feminist uh, critique of my language, which is working for. No, working for is power over. That means somebody's my boss. Working with means that we create community together to get the work done. So thank you, Rebecca. I was just trying to find a lazy way of saying that. And I think that, you know, thinking we live in a patriarchal colonialist society, you know, Even in now. the United States, in the UK, in Iran, men are in positions of power. Not only are they in positions of power, but women's work is not uh, appreciated. Uh, women's work is al almost always invisible. In the United States specifically, uh, we do not, we have laws against our body. Religious uh, beliefs and principles would say that I don't have the ownership to make decisions about my own body. You know, there's a axiom that says, you know, if, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. You know, I mean, not to get into that issue, but it is, it is my body as a woman is in danger in a patriarchal culture. My body as a woman is legislated in a, a patriarchal culture. So of course my mind isn't going to be a thought of on the same level as a man's mind. Um, when we look at education, you know, girls and young women are not encouraged to go into the sciences and into engineering because, you know, that's a man's work. I mean, it's hard to believe that in 2020, we are still talking about these essential issues of equality between men and women. Surprising, yes. Also, not surprising. You know, I'm talking to you from New York City right now, which has erupted in the last, we are on day 14 of continual uh, protests that are happening in every borough across the city and that are full of joy, full of anger, full of determination because black people in this country are tired of modern day lynching, are tired of the routine discrimination that they meet every time they leave their home or their apartment. You know, it is written on their body through the pigmentation of their skin. And just like it is written on women's bodies because we have vaginas. I mean, it is that simple and it is that unfair. So I think that the world where women of all ethnicities are equally respected um, and people of all ethnicities are equally respected and people, uh, whoever they choose to love, are equally respected. This is a feminist worldview, you know, mm -hmm. which takes into account all of us, which brings everybody to the table and doesn't look in that top down power over, power grabbing, nuclear weapon armed, loving, militarist viewpoint. You know, and we're, I think we're really at a turning point in, in, in many parts of the world. Um, and right now that turning point is being led and inspired by the movement against police brutality and the movement against uh, racism and specifically um, in our country, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we can continue to be inspired by that, but those are feminist principles. 
anti-racism is a feminist principle. Um, so if you wanted to have so I'm thinking about Hibakusha, and I'm thinking, so if, if you wanted to say, or you want to tell a story from that platform, what the story would have been, you think? Well, I mean, Rebecca knows very well that Hibakusha, particularly women Hibakusha, um, after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. What is Hibakusha? Hibakusha is the Japanese word for atomic bomb survivor. So uh, after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because of this mysterious uh, illness of radiation sickness, which really nobody knew what that was about, um, women and Hibakusha in general, but specifically women, were discriminated against. You know, you would hide the fact that you were from Hiroshima or Nagasaki during that time because women were not, in many senses, eligible for marriage because there was the fear of... Uh, radiation-induced birth defects. So they really understand the blunt end of discrimination, of prejudice, which is important to distinguish between racism, which is a systemic problem, and uh, prejudice is something that can be happening against a, a certain um, group of people in a certain sense of time. I, I, don't, I hope that I'm being clear when I'm, when I'm saying that, but Hibaksha, specifically women, suffered from discrimination. But one story, I will again intone the beautiful spokesperson of our campaign, Setsuko Thurlow, who we, Rebecca and I know and love very much. You know, the pain that Hibaksha suffered, and when we bring them into the classroom, of course, we were hoping that students would learn about nuclear weapons through a, a eyewitness point of view, first person living history, and that they would work for nuclear disarmament. But that wasn't all. It was also about human dignity, respecting one another, the importance of conflict resolution instead of war. And I will never forget after one testimony session in Lower Manhattan, when Setsuko had been sharing in front of a group of students, there was one beautiful young man who stood to one side and was waiting and waiting and waiting to listen, to hear, to speak to Setsuko privately. And um, she also was a social worker um, by training. Anyway, this young man, and we gave them some space, this young man came to her and just started to bawl. He was crying uncontrollably. And, you know, often students would react with tears when they heard the uh, stories of atomic bomb survivors, specifically thinking about them being the same age. But we let that happen. She comforted him. You know, this exchange took place. They said their goodbyes. Then we all went our separate ways. Well, what Setsuko shared with us was that this young man had lost his mother to murder and that he felt that nobody would ever be able to understand his pain, that his pain was so deep and so fundamental that he would have to live silently by himself because nobody would ever be able to understand the depth of his pain. And he understood, listening to Setsuko, that she understood his pain. And they had a real human moment. And it wasn't about nuclear disarmament, but it's about a worldview where human beings are valued. And I would identify that feminism offers that worldview where we take the individual, we care for them, we listen to them, and then we also think about how we can broaden that out to the larger world. Kathleen, you're talking about a very specific story and human being in a very micro level. 
Now, Rebecca, I want to know your ideas about the macro level. So if President Trump was here and we were talking about nuclear program, nuclear weapons, and the ways in which he deals with this issue in UN and in US, you are in, in UK, and I want also to know Kathleen's idea, but what you would tell him about your opinion about his treatment of the nuclear disarmament? I'm afraid, I, I think he treats women, he's already shown the kind of person he is by his violence against women and his pride in, in, in his exertion of uh, the power that he wields on, uh, you know, against women. And when he sadly became president, he started to treat the whole of the world as if it was inferior to, you know, he sort of projected almost, you know, the United States is, is, is him, you know, his make America great again was predicated on kind of almost, he, he identified with that. And unfortunately, so did the voters who had voted for him, although we shouldn't forget that actually Hillary Clinton got more votes. It happens to be a structural way that the US is, is um, built. But so <clears throat> there's a real problem when you have that system and then you get a man who, you know, is, is already in his own private life, uh, treats anyone who is not as rich as him, because that's actually the major thing he has, and he inherited that from his father, and that's often the case with these people. You know, the that the, they the, they then treat everybody else as if they are inferior, as if they can crush them, as if they can bully them, and that's really the kind of way that he's behaved with regard to the whole rest of of the United Nations. So these treaties that we've worked so hard, you know, over years with different people, the INF treaty that, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev signed that allowed us to get rid of though that, that new generation of what at that time were nuclear war fighting, intermediate range, they were called INF uh, weapons. And then, you know, the, the threat, he suddenly pulls out of the, the JCPOA, that Iran nuclear deal. And a lot of people thought, well, that's a, a US-Iran deal, so he can pull out. It wasn't a US-Iran oh. deal. It was the U. it was Iran, it was a negotiation between Iran, uh, the other members of the Security Council. And I have some quite serious problems with the way that they have, you know, permanent seats, but this is the world, but also with the European Union and Germany. Mm -hmm. And there were reasons for that because it was about all, you know, a sort of balance where Iran would would basically stop its nuclear program at a certain point and accept, you know, far more inspections and so on. And there had to be it had also to be backed by uh, countries that were prepared to work with Iran on other aspects of energy on other aspects, uh, aspects of technology that were not going to feed into the, the the nuclear side of things, but would actually provide Iran with things that the people of Iran had had taken away from them through sanctions. And that includes med things like medicines, you know, really basic things to keep yeah. vehicles on the road and, and you, know, you know, health and the hospitals properly equipped and all of those. And that was the, 
you know, that was sort of the way that it was established. And there was Angela Merkel uh, for Germany played a very important role. And the the EU foreign minister at that time, she, they don't call her that, but it was essentially the, the head of the, you know, foreign affairs and security part of the European Union at the time. So two strong women played a very important role in uh, actually working out that deal. And then along comes petulant Trump. You know, and he throws it, he pulls the US out of it. Why? Because his identity is that he can make a better deal than anyone else. And Mm -hmm. he is racist as well as misogynist. Mm -hmm. Look at the way he treated Obama when Obama was president. Mm -hmm. First of all, with the birthers thing. And then he's really, he's, he's almost set out to try to undo everything mm-hmm. that Obama did in power. Now, I wish Obama had done quite a lot more in power, but the fact is that when you see a system that is is, is like that, you know there is something deeply rotten. Mm-hmm. It is not just about Trump the man, although there are some really serious mental problems there. It is about a system a whole system that allows people like Trump the man or the racist police officer that knelt for nearly nine minutes on the neck of a man saying, I can't breathe. A man who was already handcuffed, who, you know, was not in any way threatening this officer. And that's why there has been such an upsurge. But you know, for many of us, these things are really connected. And just on back on briefly on the on the feminist thing, I just wanted to make a point also. The chair of the negotiations in the UN General Assembly was the ambassador for Costa Rica, which has chosen not to have a, a standing army in the way that quite a lot of countries. Her name, which was a woman, Elaine White Gomez. She was given a really tough time by some of the delegates as well as by those outside of the negotiations who just wanted to shut the negotiations down. But she was very tough and she just kept going. She had other women, some of whom were ambassadors for other delegations like the Irish and, you know, there were a number of others, but also the undersecretary general of the UN at that time was a Japanese woman. We could see how there was a different dynamic. Also, in part of the strategy that we chose, we chose to put it in a situation where all states were welcome to join the negotiations, but no states were given the power to block. So it was done in the UN General Assembly. The previous disarmament negotiations were structured in a way that gave a veto to certain states viewed as powerful which at the bottom rung would de- was at the bottom line was definitely the US and and Russia or Soviet Union then you know colonial powers like the UK like France China there you know you got this cabal of some of the worst military industrial abusers of the earth let mm. alone their own people and you know, had built up the power that they had in empire. Had built up the power in the empire. Very good. So 
You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, I'm talking with Rebecca Johnson and Kathleen Sullivan. Please check Rebecca's work and her website that includes so many important, important information, facts, and ideas about nuclear disarmament. This is something that we need to care about because we, we, we are talking about stories, stories of actual individuals when the nuclear bomb goes off. And then we are talking about those people in power who are implementing those policies that actually enables the bombs to go off. So this is this is important issue and we have to pay attention to at least after coronavirus and COVID-19, we are being more serious and giving more attention to uh, some of the things that should not happen around us and it's happening. That includes George Floyd's death, that includes even our own reflections. So I truly believe that we need, in our part, need to take action of educating ourselves of what's happening. So on that end, Rebecca Johnson do provides a wealth of information in acronym A-C-R-O-N-Y-M.org and also on xrpeace.org, a website that she posts her articles and, and writings. So please do check uh, the website. Also, I just want to tell you, this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, YouTube that Rebecca sent me. It's called Rebels Lockdown Solidarity. It's very soothing and very peaceful. I want you to check out the YouTube. It's uh, I think you're going to enjoy it tremendously. I did it and I listened throughout the, the whole song and it was beautiful. Kathleen Sullivan is available anywhere. Do you want to hear and learn about great stories of survivals and those who are overcoming some of the barriers? Hibakushastories.org. Hibakusha, H-I-B-A-K-U-S-H-A stories.org is the website that she puts out information and facts, I do encourage you to, to check her website. And also, Kathleen gracefully allowed me to post, if you love this planet, if you love this planet, heartwarming, beautiful animation about uh, what happens to the planet if nuclear weapon goes off. So I do recommend you to watch the video. You can search it on YouTube or it's available on goldtoon.com. You can check it out. It's a beautiful video. Kathleen wants us to do the following. I ask call to action and then she's going to uh, briefly tell us what she wants us to do. And then after that, we are closing Closing the program by our guests sharing something meaningful about peace and compassion. Okay, Kathleen, you wanted us to do some, some form of action. Can you just briefly tell us what you want us to do as an action plan? We are in an extraordinary time in our world. And, you know, this, my teacher and mentor, Joanna Macy, considers this the great turning a move from industrial growth society to a life-sustaining feminist society. So we can all play our role in different ways. Uh, Rebecca and I obviously work on nuclear disarmament issues. Other people might be working on extreme poverty or anti-racism or food security, or they might be organic farmers, or you know they might be raising their children in a, in a different way. You know, there's all ways that we can be shifting 
uh, towards a feminist society. And I think that there, it's, a, it's a really untold story in the United States that African-Americans played a very leading role in the anti-nuclear movement in the 50s and 60s. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself talked about the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and poverty. And he spoke very clearly about nuclear war and how um, using our public purse to continue to fund militarism definitely takes away from funding human needs. And I would draw everyone's attention to an excellent book, African-Americans Against the Bomb by Dr. Vincent Intondi. He's he's an excellent human being and wrote this very powerful book. If you could um, put the name and the author and everything in the comment box so then people can, can check okay. it out, it would be appreciated. I will do that. I will do that. So how to be intersectional, how to interweave our various concerns so that we can uphold one another in our work for uh, peace and social justice. Inshallah. Kathleen, yes, yes, we we are short in time. I'm going to go to Rebecca and then to you about uh, sharing something meaningful about peace and about kindness and compassion, thoughts, prayers, a statement. Okay, Rebecca. So, In these last few weeks, Black Lives Matter has also really gone right out across Britain because of our history also of colonialism and of of running, you know, slaving ships, taking uh, people from Africa to the Caribbean. And I've been part for the last 13, 14 years of... Million Women Rise, which is a, an organization uh, focusing on stopping and preventing violence against women and supporting women in all situations of violence, uh, you know, war as refugees and domestic violence. And this group is Black Asian led within the UK. And they they founded this partly because things like the Reclaim the Night was very much still a white-dominated march through through London. And so Million Women Rise was started by Sabrina Koreshi, this amazing uh, woman and a whole uh, group of others. And last Wednesday, we've with the lockdown, we've been meeting by Zoom and j- just checking in with each other. And last week, from so many different perspectives, my partner and I were hearing from, um, you know, women from, you know, the Congo, from Caribbean backgrounds, you know, British citizens of a whole range of backgrounds, many of which from the Indian subcontinent and, the, you know, the Car- Caribbean and, and, and other countries and Africa were countries that Britain had colonized and mistreated. And they were very, very angry and they were very passionate and they were just very clearly saying white women have now really got to get up and go actively into the streets with us at all levels. And what we've seen more than I'd seen before is that now happening, despite the fact that we're we're in lockdown, uh, we can still put placards in, in our windows. And XR Peace, which is the the peace wing of the Extinction Rebellion, the climate justice movement that also has really in the last two years 
very much stimulated by Greta Thunberg, uh, you know, one teenage girl just deciding that she was going to go on strike to get people's attention for the climate. And then a lot of kids came out and it's really the young people in the, in the lead for this. And, and that's how it has to be. And so my thoughts really are very much that I, as somebody who's been doing a lot of these and making a lot of these connections for as much of my life as I have been responsible for since, you know, I left school at least, that I just feel that what I want to do is in whatever way I can to carry on supporting that. So put a Black Lives Matter support statement onto the XR Peace website because we're doing a series of leaflets because we were going to be rebelling in the streets as part of a June rebellion, blocking, you know, the traffic, you, you know, making the pollution that's destroying the climate. But we can't do that because of, of COVID-19. But we, we could do it through putting out lots of information. So I do urge you go to the Million Women Rise website, go to the XR Peace website, go to ICANN website, at the moment, if you go to the acronym website, you'll find one that's just been hacked and is pretty destroyed. So that's wrecked. It's going to take me time to get that going again. So I can't promise that there's very much on there at all at the moment. But the other three are connectors across the world with issues of peace, justice, climate justice, Black Lives Matter and we have to say that it's no no good. We've, you know, standing with a placard, I had cars shouting, what about all lives? Of course we care about all lives. But this is a situation where some of our countries through racism and slavery made profits because black lives were not treated as though they mattered. Of course they matter. They, they matter. Everyone's lives matter equally. But it's so important to be saying black lives matter now precisely because black people are the ones dying because of white racism. It's the whites that have to understand that black lives matter. Black people know this, but they are still, you know, injured and killed. And that is why it's so important to be making these connections and changing the way, you, you know, your own social media looks and having these arguments with white neighbors. So because why should it always be women who have to talk about violence against women while the men club together and snigger in the corner, at least some of them do, because they are also involved in that violence? or at least in colluding with it. And it has to be somehow the black women. This is what, you know, my friends were saying, as black women, we don't want to keep educating white women, even. Much as we love you, we actually want you. Educate yourselves and be out there and say what needs to be said so that we, who are the ones who are oppressed, who are the ones that have been denied for so long, that we can actually stand up and shout from the rooftops and through the trees and through the streets and drag down the statue in the in Bristol where I was as a student. And we, we argued about that statue, but Black Lives Matter took the statue of Edward Colston, the slave trader, down and rolled him into the water. And I, for one, am very proud of them. And I, I think they did it non-violently. Not a person was hurt. 
That is the kind of thing that white people have to get out and say, actually, they did that for all of us. Amen. Yes, very well said. Thank you so much. Very well said. Kathleen, so what do, would you like to share with us about peace, kindness, and compassion? I think right now all of us are pretty much going through it. I mean, we're in a global pandemic. Um, as Rebecca says, we've been in lockdown, and it's it's been a very challenging time. We're still not on top of this uh, COVID-19 And unfortunately, in this country, um, military spending has been prioritized over human needs. And so people are without jobs and struggling really to survive. So I think that, um, I think one of our jobs is to, you know, not only make the links between racism and militarism and poverty as Dr. King intones us to do, but to also cultivate kindness for ourselves and uh, one another. It's very important to, you know, give each other a lot of uh, latitude right now, a lot of space. And in this, I think of a poem that my mentor, Joanna Macy, uh, translated from the original German by Reiner Maria Rilke, which he says, quiet friend who has come so far, feel how the breathing makes, feel how your breathing makes more space around you. He says, if the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. And another part of the poem is, in this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the beauty discovered there. It's about caring, it's about introspection, it's about turning pain and suffering into action and uh, motivation for the joyful struggle, uh, the nonviolent revolution that is upon us, that we are a part of, that certainly nuclear weapons have no place in, and that the love and care for one another, the caring economy, the feminist uh, worldview, it's our time. And I do believe that we are seeing this unfold before us. It's not going to be easy, and it certainly uh, will be affecting different people in different ways. I am a white woman. Uh, I have privilege, but as Rebecca said, you know, it is up to us that have that privilege to be called to the front, to be a part of the change that we must bring and to be part of the joyful nonviolent revolution that we are calling for. And we see that it works. I mean, I now this will be the third time that I've mentioned uh, Rebecca as my Shiro at Freedom Common. But that was nonviolent and it was revolutionary and it worked. Yes, again, inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for being here, being my honored guest. Truly appreciate. And I learned a lot. I learned uh, from the discussion. Thank you so much. And with the audience here, uh, we say goodbye.